You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 94 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's the last Sunday of the month again, and this time we will listen to a trialogue between biologist Rupert Sheldrake, physician Dr. Andrew Weil, and mathematician Ralph Abraham. This talk has been lifted from Sheldrake.org, which has a vast abundance of interesting talks, videos, and essays. The talk we are about to listen to is called Placebos and Mind-Body Relationships. The title of the talk speaks for itself, and all I'm going to say is that placebos can be very effective, but they only work if the patient believes it is an effective medicine. So, does this mean that the true cure of all disease is in the mind? Well, good evening. Um, Welcome. I'm starting off this trialogue. Um, You may be able to spot the difference between me Andy and Ralph. I'm the only one without a beard. Um, So someone has to start and that's going to be me. Um, We're going to start by talking about the relation between the mind and the body. Something all of us have been thinking about and probably everyone in this room has been interested in for years. It's something that no one knows the answer to. It's one of the great unsolved problems of science. And a very good starting point for this is the placebo effect. Everybody agrees now that there's such a thing as the placebo effect. What you believe is going to make you better in the form of a pill, for example, or a surgical treatment often does. Um, This has been known about for a very, very long time, of course. Um, People in the medical professions weren't perhaps always fully aware of it, but certainly many of them have suspected it existed for a long time. My father was a pharmacist, and he was completely convinced of the placebo effect. All the time I was a child, he used to talk about it, how what makes people better is what they believe. He made up a whole series of medicines that he... Uh, put together himself and he had a big following in our town of people who came for his medicines he never took any of them himself because he hardly ever took medicines himself Um, but he had ones that tasted bitter he had ones full of there was one called crown sand which had a sort of brown deposit that went to the bottom of the bottle and you had to shake it very well before you could take it and that was something people liked doing it said in big letters shake the bottle Um, and he was convinced that people got better by believing they'd get better. He was a firm believer in the principle that the nastier the medicine ta- tastes, the better it'll uh, be for people. Um, so he knew these things, and many people in the healing arts have known these things for a very long time. But it's only recently that there's been a, a lot of serious attention paid to this in medical research. Until fairly recently, placebo effects were regarded as a nuisance by most uh, clinical researchers, getting in the way of clear-cut results in clinical trials. Um, But now the mood is changing, and there was a fascinating conference in London last autumn, which Jill, my wife, and I went to, 
in which uh, there were people from mainstream medical research centers, brain imaging, people from Oxford, um, uh, people who did uh, all sorts of uh, clinical research, people from alternative medicine, um, discussing the placebo effect, the effect of the mind in medicine. And it's now generally agreed that placebo effects play a very big part in all forms of medicine, including conventional medicine. Um, what people believe is going to make them feel better often does make them feel better. And the conference ended with, uh, well, there were analyses. One of the most striking analyses was from Owen, Owen Kirsch, who's a professor now in England from the United States, on placebo effects and Prozac. Uh, the published data show that uh, placebo pills that people don't know are blank pills are about 80% as effective as Prozac. But the unpublished data, which he managed to get through the Freedom of Information Act, uh, and the unpublished studies, which the drug companies didn't want to publish, and it was hard for him to get, showed the, the uh, placebo was 100% as effective as Prozac. Um, now, these were striking figures, and this is, this is billions of dollars a year spent on what may be effectively placebos. Um, and the conference ended with a question that I think I'd like to ask Ralph and Andy what they think about, which was, can there be an honest placebo? Because if you know it's a placebo, it won't work. If the person administering it knows it's a placebo, it won't work as well. So it will only really work if you believe it will work. Um, yet the placebo effect is what we define as something which is inactive, as having an active effect. So there's a kind of paradox at the heart of this whole thing. I don't know what you th think about it, Ralph or Andy. Well, uh, you know, as a physician who is interested in changing the medical paradigm, um, the whole subject of placebos is very dear to my heart. Uh, I have written a, a whole chapter on them in a book called Health and Healing that was published in 1984. And at that time, I think what I had to say was not met with great responsiveness from the medical profession, but my views on the subject are very strong and very, very clear. The word placebo comes from Latin and means I will please. And the old concept of a placebo is something given to a patient to please the patient's desire to be medicated when in the doctor's mind there's no real reason to do that. And it has been observed, however, that when you do this you get real responses, healing responses. Um, and uh, Rupert is quite correct to say that this whole thing has been regarded as a nuisance. A classic example is probably the most common use of placebos in medicine has been to treat pain. If a, if a patient responds to a placebo by having a decrease in pain, most doctors interpret this to mean that the patient's pain was not real or that the patient was exaggerating the pain. Um, the commonest phrase in which I heard, hear the word placebo used by my medical colleagues is, uh, something like, we have to rule out the placebo effect, or how do you know that's not just a placebo effect? And to me, the most interesting word in that sentence is just. So the placebo effect is, is it, it is looked down upon. It is, it's not real. And the irony of all this is, to my mind, 
placebo, I first will prefer to call them placebo responses rather than placebo effects because they're not effects of what you're giving the person, they're responses from the person to what's being done. It's also, by the way, not correct, Rupert, that you can, with some patients, say, I'm going to give you an injection of sugar, of salt water. This has absolutely no pharmacological activity. And nonetheless, the patient will have a response uh-huh. to it. So, so that's an interesting observation. Yes. But the more, the more, the trickier area, and this is where I, I must say, I think you will understand this more than my medical colleagues. I have a terrible time trying to talk about this concept with physicians is the question of inactivity versus activity. Because the, the true classic placebo is something that has no intrinsic activity, a sugar pill or an injection of, of salt water. Um, Doctors are very uncomfortable with that kind of medicine because it, it, they're tricking patients, and they don't like to feel that they're tricking people, that they're, that they're being deceptive. Nonetheless, there are pharmacies. I don't know if this is still done, but when I was doing my internship in San Francisco, the hospital pharmacy stocked placebos, and you could order a placebo for a patient. And one time, a colleague of mine got a frantic call from a patient that he had prescribed a placebo for some symptoms that he thought were completely uh, made up. And uh, the woman called up having horrible uh, stomach pains, and he thought he asked her to read what the label said, and she said it says P-L-A-C-E-B-O number one. And he, he could not believe that the hospital pharmacy had actually written that on the medication. But he was very fast on his feet, and he said, that's the problem. Number one is much too strong for you. Stop, stop, stop taking it. And, and, and she came in and exchanged it for blue pills. These were red um, for placebo number two, and, and the reaction subsided. Now, however, <laughs> nonetheless, this is the old stuff. And I say doctors are very uncomfortable with it. However, the more interesting area for me is what I call active placebos. And this, you touch on this. In a sense, anything you do to a patient, any injection you give, any pill you give, the response that you see is a mixture of the intrinsic effect of what you do and then the response from the person to what they feel being done to them. Mm. Active placebos, which is, I think, everything in medicine, are much more interesting. Uh, but that whole concept of an active placebo, that's got this built-in paradox. Mm. So when you try to talk about active placebos, many people have no idea what you're talking about. Mm. Um, I, in my work, that early work that I did with uh, marijuana, uh, wrote that I thought marijuana was a perfect active placebo because the the actual pharmacological effects are so minimal and people have to learn to associate those cues with an altered state of consciousness. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think any time we do medicine, we're we're using the placebo response, and not only is it not a nuisance. I think it's the greatest thing we've got going for us in medicine. <laughs> I think it is the meat of medicine, the, the, the best treatment. What you want to do is elicit the maximum healing response with the minimal invasion. So to get a maximum healing response with the least powerful intervention, that's the goal. Mm. Um, and that's working with this realm of belief. Mm. Um, it's, this is all, it's tricky, it's interesting, and I find it endlessly fascinating. I never give patients inactive placebos. I never trick patients. But I'm very comfortable with the uncertainty of not knowing how much of a favorable response is due to the intrinsic activity of an herb, say, and how much is due to the belief 
that I can inspire in the person. And the best way that I can do that is by presenting a treatment with genuine conviction. And the best way that I can do that is that I've actually experienced it for myself. So if I have used a plant and had and known in my own body that it works, I can present that to a patient with the kind of conviction that's going to maximize the the therapeutic effect. Mm. And I think, and then one, one last thing, and then I'll stop. The, the era of randomized controlled testing of drugs using placebos is now about uh, 60 years, goes back about 60 years, somewhere after the Second World War. And uh, if you look, you know, this is the gold standard of research. There's an assignment that I often give medical students and doctors, which is to go into any medical library and randomly pull off the shelf any issue of a medical journal that reports double-blind drug testing and open it to the back where there's a summary table of results. Always, and I emphasize always, in the control group, that is the placebo group, there will be one or two or a small number of subjects who show all of the changes produced by the drug that was used in the experimental group. That, to me, is the most interesting finding to come out of 60 years of randomized controlled drug testing. My interpretation of that is that any change that we can produce in a human organism with a pharmacological agent can be exactly mimicked in at least some individuals some of the time purely by a mind-mediated mechanism. And that's astonishing. Nothing, nothing that we can do to a person with a pharmacological agent is not exactly reproducible some of the time in some individuals by whatever this mind-body mm. mechanism is. Mm. 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 Well, I'm, I'm not a medical doctor and not a pharmacist and not a biologist. I'd like to return to Rupert's question at the end of the story of this conference about the placebo effect. And uh, the question is whether it would matter if you believed in the placebo effect or not. W would it actually... Uh, harm the effectiveness of a placebo medicine if you uh, knew it was placebo. So if there are going to be these gatherings of medical scientists with their imaging apparatus and so on, if they establish honestly published scientific results about the placebo effect, I believe that pl placebos would become more effective rather than less. And the reason is that people would then believe on the basis of science that the, you know, that sugar works as well as Prozac. This would have the effect of enormously debunking the bunk of the pharmaceutical industry and also empowering all kind of alternative medicine practices, but not only alternative medicine practices, but the belief in the power of the mind in the mechanical operation of the body. So the reason uh, I'm interested in this is not a medical or pharmaceutical reason. But I think we are faced with uh, the disease of the body of our planet, of our society. And part of the mechanism of this disease of the biosphere is the separation of all different subjects from all the other subjects so that we're lacking the integration of knowledge, lacking the integration of minds, lacking the awareness of the interconnectedness of all things. So I am only interested in placebo effect 
to the degree to which it encourages us to recognize uh, and and uh, revere the interconnection of all things, as that is a step in the direction of the uh, the cure, uh, the the bifurcation, as it were, of our planetary society from an unsustainable track to a sustainable track. That's what we're interested in. So at the same time, we debunk the pharmaceutical industry and learn new ways of making inexpensive medicines and so on. We have to authorize people to believe in what they already know, which is traditional knowledge of the interconnection of all things. So I am wondering if uh, you, gentlemen, actually would uh, undertake your research in these areas and your study and your uh, publication and practice and, and, and so on of these effects on the basis of their importance in solving the major problem of our, of our time or only because they're interesting in themselves in some branch of medical No, science. here I'll give you uh, an answer to that. Uh, placebo responses are not stable. They, they wax and wane and they change from culture to culture and time to time. There is a very famous uh, adage in medicine that's been attributed to a number of people. It was probably said by a man named William Osler, who was a Canadian-American uh, physician of 100 years ago. He said that a new remedy should be used as much as possible while it still has the power to heal. That is, that is something we observe all the time. New drugs work best near the time of their introduction. And and over time, they lose their power. The conventional interpretation is that longer experience with them reveals their limitations. Now, my interpretation, and Rupert's, is that when they that there is belief in novelty, so uh, new things um, stimulate a larger placebo response. So you're seeing at the beginning the intrinsic effect of the drug with a big halo of placebo response, and over time that halo shrinks as the drug becomes more familiar. Now, in the same way, at the moment, most patients that I meet um, have much greater faith in the products of pharmaceutical laboratories than they do in the productions of nature. I would like to change that because these products of pharmaceutical laboratories cause a great deal of harm. They're often not not the best agents for intervening in disease. There's the whole economic aspect of it that's not good for the planet. Uh, it would be much better to shift, to sort of move that, that belief system in a better direction. And I think that we have the power to do that. Yes, but Ralph's point really about the problems of the planet. I mean, at first I thought he was suggesting some kind of planetary placebo for global warming or something, where, you know, we could have sort of a small amount of biodiesel or ethanol or something in, in, in the drinking water or something like that. Um, but I think actually taking seriously what he was saying about trying to think how it could, could affect the global problem, it seems to me the way it could affect it is through hope. P placebos make people hope and believe they're going to get better. They, they give hope as opposed to despair. Despair has a depressive effect on the immune system and on the general physiology of the body. And that's probably true collectively. If a whole society despairs, um, then it's less likely to be able to deal with the problems than if it has hope. So what we need are social placebos, it seems to me. Social inventions. Hollyhock is one of the centers, the laboratories for social inventions. And many of them are based on hope. So actually we're already in the social laboratory that does that kind of thing. 
And there are several people here who love stories that give hope. People who've done great work in conditions of appalling deprivation, and someone goes in, they make an, they make an intervention, things are turned around, kids who would have died survive, people who would have despaired have hope, and so on. And it seems to me those might be the kind of placebos that would work on it planetary scale, they, they, they're things that we do want to, they do please us to hear these stories, they do give us hope, and by giving us hope they give us more chance of dealing with the problems so um, is that the sort of thing you had in mind Ralph, or not? Uh, n- no, but that's a good start <laughs> uh, so you're suggesting among other things that uh, biodiesel as opposed to being a cure of the carbon budget problem, is itself a placebo. It gives uh, hope. Well, actually, for well-informed ecologists, it doesn't. It gives despair, because it's a terrible way of solving the problems. But for some people, it gives hope, because they think, oh, this is a problem. We don't need to despair. We can fix this somehow. At least it gives a kind of temporary sticking plaster kind of hope to people's approach to global to climate change. Yes, well... Uh, I I was hoping to sort of uh, pop out to another level, and let me just mention this word, uh, spirit, or spiritual. And um, this has got nothing to do with placebo. This is a question of what is your cosmology, your perception of reality. So in this connection, I'd like to ask you, Rupert, I I think I maybe should ask you this a long time ago, because uh, people sometimes say, oh, do you know Rupert Sheldrake? And I say yes, and then I give my my little description, as uh, Dana did. And uh, uh, is it true or not? So this is what I say uh, about Rupert. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You uh, do research on the paranormal phenomena, not because you're interested in the paranormal paranormal phenomena so much as trying to uh, devise a strictly scientific uh, protocol that would have the effect of radicalizing the scientific establishment and popping them out of their dogma, which is, I think, many people, maybe not scientists, not exactly blame science, but consider scientists to be part of the global problem because of their uh, dogma, their uh, function of denial about certain mechanisms and so on. So this is what, but, but maybe this isn't true. What do you think? That your um, paranormal uh, phenomena experiments are so well devised that except for a few uh, completely mad dog skeptics, there, uh, science can't deny them when you have a very strong um, experimental support for the staring experiment or telepathy between dogs and their owners or whatever then uh, the honest scientist is going to have to acknowledge that science is limited by its dogma and has to be opened up well I mean it's true that part of the intention is to try and open up science and um, I don't call them paranormal phenomena, by the way. I call them normal phenomena. Um, Because they happen on a regular basis to lots of people. They're only classified as paranormal because they don't fit into the scientific box as presently defined. Um, I think these kinds of experiments on the feeling of being stared at by somebody 
dogs telepathically picking up when their owners are coming home, show that minds are interconnected at a distance, that we're much more interconnected than science at present says. What it says at present is our minds are nothing but our brains. Mental activity is brain activity. It's all inside the head. This is, I think, very disempowering for people, and it's also false. Um, So... um, I think that the much greater sense of our interconnection with the environment and with each other uh, would help to open up science, would help to open up our understanding of consciousness, our consciousness, the consciousness of animals, and the broader question of our relationship to higher forms of consciousness, forms of consciousness beyond the human level. So that is part of the objective. Um, And I do think that the placebo thing... uh, has a relevance to it as well because as Andy said this remarkable fact that uh, when people take placebos they get side effects and some of the the things that people who take the real drug get what's going on there how are they connected with those who are taking the real drug is it just belief they don't necessarily know what the side effects are is it a kind of telepathic connection a kind of telepathic empathy with the other people in the trial who are getting these effects I think that's a more likely explanation but they do show this kind of interconnection between us and that's what most people assume happens it's the kind of common view of all traditional cultures societies and religions the belief that we're interconnected with each other it's denied by this atomistic materialistic view of the mind in modern science and it's probable that if we had a more realistic view of ourselves and our interconnection with each other and the world we'd have a better starting point for dealing with global problems but I'm not quite sure where one would begin, having said that. Andy, no doubt, has a solution. Well, I want... <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's... We've talked about this, Rupert, in our dialogues. It's doing these experiments. Ralph, what you said, that legitimate scientists can't deny these results, but they can ignore them. And this is what I see happen all the time, that these, they put them in a compartment and say they're not going to let this influence their worldview. And that's the real challenge, is how, how, do you, um, how do you convince people other than the converted? Well, this is something we talked about last year, and I think that there have been a few advances since then that I haven't yet mm-hmm. told you about. Which is, Last year, we, Andy and I discussed the problem of how do you change the scientific and medical establishments. And I naively believed, to start with, that this was based on evidence. Andy's much more seasoned and experienced in this world than I, and showed that actually people do just ignore it. I have to admit it, it's true. They're not affected by the evidence if they don't want to be. But the light, the, the, the encouraging thing is that many people within the scientific and medical worlds um, actually are open to these things. The problem is they don't dare say it to their colleagues. So the social model here, it's a social problem more than an evidence problem. It's a social problem, which you, uh, the, the best model for which is the gay liberation movement. It's a matter of holistically-minded scientists and doctors coming out and actually saying to their colleagues what they really think. Most of them keep quiet. Uh, they won't speak at work about the fact that their dog may be telepathic, that they've, <laughs> they've anticipated when someone's going to call them on the phone, that they or their, someone, someone in their family has been to see a homeopathic practitioner or an acupuncturist. They don't mention this at work because they think everyone else is so straight. 
I had this experience in a small department in Cambridge the, uh, dealing with animal behavior. There were six staff members in the department. I gave a seminar on dogs uh, knowing when their owners are coming home and other forms of animal telepathy. And after the talk, one after another came up to me and said, you know, I think this is really fascinating. I believe these things happen, but I can't talk about it here because all my colleagues are so straight. When all six of them, including the professor, had said the same thing to me, I said, why don't you guys come out? You'd have so much more fun. And, uh, and, and, as to as what we discussed last year was that one way of encouraging this holistic liberation movement within biology and medicine uh, would be to have surveys using standard public opinion poll methods uh, in the scientific and medical communities. Um, and if surveys are done, I'm pretty sure they'd show that a large minority, if not a majority, are open to these things. The existence of such objective evidence would convince many scientists they didn't have so much to fear or to lose by speaking out. And as then the tyranny of the skeptics, the dogmatists, the uh, aggressive materialists who, who claim to speak for the whole scientific community would be undermined. Um, I've approached several people in the sociology of science since we met last year and suggested this survey idea. Uh, there's been a very, very positive response. And... Um, there's even a, a man at Lancaster University who takes it very seriously and is even trying to apply for funding to do this. Um, so I think this is an idea that if we all work on it, and if anybody here can find ways of making that happen, it's simple, using existing methods, uh, to liberate scientists from the belief they're the only one in their department who think differently. They're not. In almost every scientific department, they're going to have lots of colleagues who think differently. So it's really a social problem, and I think if we can break the tyranny of this um, belief system that everybody else is totally conventional, materialistic, and narrow, uh, if we can get rid of that illusion, uh, science and medicine would change quite rapidly. Well, I'd like to su suggest another way. Good. And, uh, you, you know, if somebody asked me, uh, have you met uh, Andy Weil? I say, well, yes, uh, we met at the Telluride Mushroom Festival and, and, you know, he was wearing an apron and so on. So I have my, <laughs> um, my a little story about uh, Andy Wiles uh, program in integrative medicine and uh, uh, that is that uh, medicine the medical establishment is in process of opening somehow to the integrative approach and one evidence of that is the integrative medicine program at the University of Arizona Tucson even exists and uh, I think that this is sorry uh, but my idea is that we're having a trialogue and therefore I can't just look at you. See, I have to look at them. So I should, should have thought to turn this. Um, the reason that is happening, I think maybe even you told me this, is an economic one, that alternative medicine is cheaper and uh, allotropic medicine is getting more and more expensive and uh, nobody, even most wealthy people on the planet, can afford it. So uh, there's a, an economic imperative to develop, you know, explore cheaper ways that work by especially uh, examining scientifically those uh, traditional <coughs> medical methods from, from other cultures. This is sort of the Amory Lovins approach to ultralight automobiles. 
So um, my, my idea is, yes, you're right about the transformation of medical and scientific establishment from within. What it seems to me is more important is the uh, disempowerment of these uh, elites. Uh, you know, the degree to which the medical doctor or the laboratory scientist disagrees with what is the consensus of ordinary people who know uh, to be true about the placebo effect or whatever, to that degree there will be disempowered, that they should be dethroned as the hall of wisdom. What counts for truth in our society is not just a question of what uh, scientists say. We see how wrong they have been about global climate warming, about environmental problems, about topsoil, about water, and so on. So uh, in many places, the grassroots uh, movement of people opening their consciousness, uh, for example, you mentioned uh, the gay liberation movement. So this is not coming from the seats of wisdom, the medical schools, and so on. These are grassroots movements where people are empowered by the confidence in themselves and their own wisdom. And uh, that is, I think, what has to be done if uh, science doesn't... uh, have a bifurcation, a catastrophic leap to new understanding more in conformity with what everybody knows, then to that extent they will actually uh, lose their income. You know, Ralph, I would say um, medicine is the perfect example of an authoritarian, patriarchal, old paradigm elite that's held great power. And um, the, the priests of that system certainly are in the process of being dethroned. Um, and if you look at how that's come about, first of all, just the extent to which it's come about is interesting to look at. When I was growing up, uh, my family doctor, who was a nice guy, wrote prescriptions in Latin. And the purpose of that was to prevent me from knowing what was written on the paper. And then you went to a pharmacy and handed that over a high counter that was there to prevent you from seeing what went on behind it. And then you were given a bottle of something and you never asked questions about what that was. Placebo number one. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Now, one of the things that has changed all this, I mean, it's, I think, a combination. One is a globally a desire for empowerment um, that many people feel that they're, they're fed up with being on the receiving end of this kind of authoritarian, patriarchal treatment. Uh, it's also an, a very powerful force has been the Internet. And uh, when, um, when patients began to go to the Internet to answer medical questions, uh, doctors were very threatened by that. And there are all sorts of warnings in print about the dangers of going out on the Internet to unknown sites. And I must say that I think that has completely leveled the playing field between doctors and patients. And I've seen many situations in the past few years where people faced with very complicated medical problems and decisions have found exactly the information they needed on the Internet and then presented that to their physicians who were unaware of it. So that's changed everything. And then you're quite right to say, I mean, I think it is the economic collapse of the system that's now creating the opening. It hasn't been any amount of philosophical arguing. It's that the, the system is crumbling down in ruins and and uh, the only solution is to find more cost-effective methods of dealing with, uh, with health care. So do you think that we might see the comeback of certain so-called pseudosciences such as uh, astrology, not only placebo <laughs> and homeopathy and and uh, laying out of hands. Well, that's uh, certainly the, that healing. is certainly the fear. I mean, the fear that I see in in uh, in a lot of medical colleagues is that if you open the door 
to herbal medicine and the homeopathy that com- what comes in right behind it is crystal healing and astrology and that's the end of western rationalism <laughs> I think it is a very big fear at the moment and there's been this huge in the last year this huge atheist revival movement um, in the US and elsewhere with these books by Richard Dawkins The God Delusion Christopher Hitchens God is Not Great big bestsellers <laughs> big bestsellers Dawkins book has sold a million copies worldwide um, these books have had a huge effect in the publishing industry they, they've been on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks uh, months um, Daniel Dennett breaking the spell um, Anthony Grayling a British author against all gods there's been this massive atheist campaign which is a kind of scientific fundamentalism a kind of backlash of 19th century materialism I mean I can see why some people feel there's a need for a critique of some kinds of organized religion but this goes way beyond that it's a kind of throwback to 19th century materialism which all the things we've been talking about would be negated by it would put us right back into a kind of physico-chemical mechanical universe and that's a major social force at the moment and it's occurred in the last year and is, has gained an astonishing degree of uh, coverage in the media so what, what, what do you actually make of this I, I think I, well I mean the positive way of looking at it is that it's a sign of how powerful the, the, the change has been and mm. this is a kind of last ditch uh, defense mm. yes but it's still a, it's a very powerful movement, and they're trying to rally forces within universities and the medical system. In Britain, some of these people, uh, led by Ed Zard Ernst and other extreme skeptics, uh, recently campaigned against homeopathy within the National Health Service, where we've had it for many years, for decades. Homeopathy has been on the National Health Service. They've been writing letters to the Times and uh, other newspapers, getting questions asked in Parliament, saying, why should money be wasted on cures that are known to be ineffective? They're trying to shut down the Royal Homeopathic Hospital. They've already got homeopathy uh, eliminated from various National Health Service trusts. This is a major backlash, much worse than anything we've seen until now, going in exactly the opposite direction to the way we think things should be going. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, our strategy in integrative medicine has been to soft pedal uh, the alternative therapies and emphasize the, the safe stuff like, uh, you know, healing responses and lifestyle medicine and, and uh, things that nobody could possibly argue with. Hmm. And then you sort of get the other stuff in. You know, in well, the, by the, that's under just the what they're afraid of. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And they think that science and reason themselves are threatened. They really do see that. It's interesting to watch. Uh, Chinese medicine has made unbelievable inroads in North America. I mean, in every town you find practitioners of Chinese medicine and acupuncture. And even in conventional medical settings, acupuncture is used for pain relief. But that's a big foot in the door. And if you look at what's attached to the foot, it's something that really doesn't (laughs) belong there. It's a whole system of energies flowing through the body. um, And... (laughs) You know, things that are simply not allowed for in the Western materialistic paradigm. Hmm. So I think, I think that all these things are, are happening, and, I, and that's why you see this violent kind of reaction. Hmm. 
Well, I, th- I think that uh, Chinese medicine is relatively easy to swallow, even for orthodox scientists. I don't know what Dawkins thinks and Hitchens. Uh, homeopathy, likewise, is is sort of consistent with model, but astrology, you okay. see, this uh, speaks again the, uh, for the interconnection of right. situations across time. So we have experiments in precognitive dreams, in presentiment, in retrocausation, blah, blah, blah. That, that, so I, I call it this paranormal phenomenon because it's out of the box according to modern science. There are other things that are in the box which are also like really paranormal, uh, like the mind-body connection. If I can think something and then say it in words, that is really paranormal. I mean, we don't have a scientific explanation. Nevertheless, it's not condemned by modern science. They just they all <laughs> take it for granted. So uh, it, it, it could be that the movement uh, of atheism... Uh, against organized religion. I mean, I, I agree. I hate all this uh, dogma stuff coming from every uh, cultural tradition. The thing is that science is just another religion, and these people who are debunking religion, they are the orthodox of the scientific establishment. They're promoting that as religion. They believe in dogma. They not only ignore, they reject, they penalize, they refuse to invite you to conferences and so on because they are protecting their dogma against science itself, the true scientific experiment, the scientific method, you know, if they really believe in what they say they believe in, they would not be able to deny things that are so established. So something like um, precognitive dreams, presentiment, these challenge the worldview. Our worldview, not only science, more than anything else, yet there is this scientific uh, evidence. And and I think that if progress um, could be made in people believing in themselves. If people have a precognitive dream, then they should acknowledge that experience in themselves, despite the fact that everybody and their brother says that this is wrong and is impossible. And in this way, the dogma of science would be weakened by the uh, rising of uh, true science, of uh, experimental yes. support, for actual experience, and this, we we have to have this in order to uh, develop a sustainable society in the future. Hmm. Well, well, I was just going to say that the. Um I think one of the bright points is that consciousness studies is now a very active field within science. The question of how we think something and then say it, just these simple questions about the nature of consciousness are now very much on the scientific agenda. And the naive materialist attempts to say, oh, oh, it's just a matter of nerve cells and the brain, uh, as people discover more about the brain, more about how consciousness is working, most recently uh, discoveries through brain scans about different regions of the brain uh, being involved and so on, how they're connected together. These are now very active parts of debate, and naive materialists are not having a very good time. All sorts of theories are now coming forward. There's uh, a tremendous amount of discussion, uh, and I think it's consciousness itself which is challenging the scientific orthodoxy from within, because it's now firmly on the scientific agenda, having been expelled from it for decades. It's now really in the heart of, of science, and I think it's one of the most exciting areas of modern science, consciousness studies. And because this does challenge the materialist assumption by actually trying to get 
people have to try and explain how we can be conscious, how we can do what we do, how different areas of the brain are connected together, the so-called binding problem. If one bit lights up when you see colors, another bit for shapes, another bit for lines moving, another bit for um, things moving up and down, these different bits of the brain, when you just look at something, they're different parts of the brain. The question is, how can we form a united experience out of activity in different parts of the brain? It's called the binding problem. Now, the only way people can solve this is by saying, well, there must be something which integrates these, and now they're getting into field theories. The brain waves, the electrical patterns of activity within the brain, are somehow integrating these. And this is leading to much more integrative theories of how consciousness works. So I think it's just mainstream consciousness studies is itself making quite a difference. Ralph, you're asking people to trust in their own experience, and uh, that's tough for a lot of people. You know, it's disturbing how many people want to turn over interpretation of their experience to someone else, to an external authority. I mean, it seems to me that's what fuels uh, fascism and cults, and, and the root of it is fear. So maybe the antidote is the hope that you propose, you know, Rupert, that to whatever extent we can dispel fear, it enables people to trust more in their own experience. And also, you've been both using the words experiment and experience, and I've always been uh, thought it was a shame that in English those have become separate words, when in uh, all languages derived from Latin it's the same word. Uh, in Spanish, experimentar means both to experience and to experiment. And I think if you spoke a language where the word was the same, you would have more of a sense that your experience was your experimentation, and that uh, the way you experiment is by using your own experience. Mm. So what do you think about consciousness studies and the role it has to play? You know, I've gone to these consciousness uh, conferences. There's very little there that speaks to me. It just seems... Mm. Uh, I, I think, you know, my own feeling is that consciousness is is primary, that it's, mm. the, it's central to everything. And, uh, you know, but this is my bias. I, I see form as a manifestation of consciousness, not the other way around. So mm. it's very difficult for me to be in rooms full of people who, who see consciousness as a byproduct of electrical activity in the brain or biochemical reactions in the brain. Mm. An epiphenomenon, An they would call it. Right, right. <laughs> uh, well, I, I've been to these uh, conferences also called Science and Consciousness, uh, but more in, in India, where it's a completely different story. And uh, I have this complaint about consciousness studies as a scientific subject in the Journal of Consciousness Studies and so on. Uh, what they mean by consciousness is, I think, what we could call the conscious part of an individual human mind. Then there's also the unconscious system, which is much larger. So we take the conscious and the unconscious system of the individual human together, and then we could call that the individual mind. Our interest in this in phenomenon like telepathy is that different minds are connected. And in the Indian system, and uh, also in ancient Greek philosophy, these minds are connected into something called the, the, the all-soul, or the pranamaya kosha. And uh, this soul even is part of a larger structure and, and so on. I, I think that until we try to understand our, the, the all-soul, our experience of the interconnection with other uh, minds and with the 
if I can use the, misuse the word consciousness, of uh, rocks, trees, biospheres, planets, stars, the sun, and so on, until we could progress past the known fields of physics, the gravitational, electromagnetic, and strong and weak nuclear forces, uh, to encompass uh, morphic fields and family fields and social fields and the integration of all fields into a certain something. That is the subject of so-called consciousness studies in India. And uh, nobody is talking about this on the pages of the Journal of Consciousness Studies. That's my complaint. It's, maybe it's a good start. Say we have to start somewhere. What is the interaction between the individual conscious mind and the body? But suppose there is no solution there because the connection between the conscious mind and the body is through the unconscious mind. So unless we look at the bigger picture, the question is ill-posed and has no answer. Well, it's certainly true. It doesn't involve the... That's one part of it, but consciousness studies doesn't really look at the bigger picture of how our consciousness might be related to higher forms of consciousness. And one of the things I'm particularly interested in myself is prayer. It's surprising how many people pray. Actually, I'd be surprised to know how many people do pray, for example, by taking a survey right now. I mean, how many people here uh, pray sometimes or regularly? Yeah, well, well, define it yourself in terms of what you would say. That was certainly a lot of people. Can we try? Praying, it would be a matter of a kind of conversation or request or uh, relationship with a higher form of consciousness, which you could think of as God, you could think of as perhaps your higher self, you could think of spirits or goddesses or whatever, but some kind of relationship like that, that a kind of conversation or request. So how many people uh, here pray? Well, that's very interesting. That's certainly a large majority. Um, well, you see, this is something that is very, very rarely discussed, and very, it, I suspect it's a major part of a lot of people's lives, and it suggests an implicit relationship to um, some other kind of consciousness beyond our own. Even if the materialists say this is just a projection of our own consciousness, the fact is that prayer, when it's being carried out, is based on this sense of a relationship with another kind of consciousness. And um, this is something which isn't even on the map of consciousness studies, to take your point about how limited it is. And I do agree, though, Rupert, it's a start, because when I was an undergraduate, what I was most interested in was consciousness. There was no place or way to study that. Yes. No, I none. agree it's a there start. There was none. I tried various, I tried psychology, I tried whatever. I, there was no place in which I could, that was a legitimate inquiry. So it's changed. Somehow. Oh, I agree it's yeah. changed. But, yeah. I mean, we still, you know, the, the question of how we could go further. Yeah. And this also, of course, relates to medicine, placebo effects. Right. Prayer, the power of prayer, praying for, one, for others or for intercessory prayer. I'm not now referring to those yeah. somewhat yeah. simple-minded prayer studies. Right. But the, the, if most people in this room pray, probably most people in this room very rarely discuss with others how they pray or what they, or what they do when they pray. It's one of the most taboo and secret subjects in my experience. Right. By the way, if I can just tell one little story. Uh, a great uh, institutional version of prayer for medical success is Christian science. And uh, I at one point did a lot of research on the history of Christian science. And one of the things that I came across was that there's a, quite a body of, of clinical experience that when Christian scientists 
psychiatrists do, for whatever reason, submit to taking medicine, they have fantastic responses to it, much greater than average people. Dude. And it's yes, and it's because this is it's so taboo. So even the you know it's breaking that taboo. There's a greater commitment of of belief, mm. really, in the mm. power of the thing out there that's been avoided. That's very interesting. But now what about Christian scientists themselves? Do they have a higher or lesser incidence of disease than others? I mean, there must be studies well, they, on this. You know, they probably don't engage in riotous living and, and uh, you know, have better habits than, than mm. most of us, so it's hard to control for all those other factors. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> To find out more about Rupert Sheldrake, go to sheldrake.org. Dr. Andrew Weil's website is Dr. Weil, that's uh, D-R-W-E-I-L.com. And Ralph Abraham's website is ralph-abraham.org. Now we will listen to a song called Crybaby by White Lighters of the album Dracula Crybaby. Go to whitelighters13.bandcamp.com and 13 as in the number, not the, the word. So whitelighters13.bandcamp.com uh, to check out more of their music. You will find all the links in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com and if you go there you can also check out some of the many little essays I have written. Freedom is in the mind. <laughs> I can't 